Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Sal Sports and Stuff podcast. Been a little while since I chatted with you. I think the last person I had on here uh, was Adrian Waddle's wife, who was doing a whole bunch of uh, fundraising and helping out for a uh, abused children's hospital in Nashville after all of the stuff that went down between the voting of the fans and how the Titans fans basically kind of cheated and bought votes and beat the Bills fans out and stuff like that. It was pretty wild that time of year. Uh, but this is what we talk about in the offseason. Crazy, wacky, wild, weird stuff. And we're getting closer to the start of training camp. The Bills training camp schedule should be out within the next couple of weeks. It's usually right around mid-June, right around the end of mandatory minicamp, and that's happening next week. So here's the schedule laying out for you as I sit here and talk to you on June 6th, which is, of course, D-Day. So all of our thoughts and thanks uh, to the greatest generation, uh, the World War II young men, uh, even women back in this country who are helping to do the things that were needed to be done to make sure that this world was a great place to live in and that we could still be doing stuff like this in 2019, 75 years later when the beaches were stormed in 1944. Thank you very much. It's not forgotten or missed on anyone. And it is June 6th, and that means the Bills have a OTA practice today and tomorrow. There will not be any media availability or media watching allowed in these two OTAs. Uh, Through the 10 OTA practices, only three of them had media availability. That's just kind of the rules set forth by the NFL of how much access is allowed, and then the Bills kind of set their own rules as far as how much they want to give. So it's basically one time per week through the OTAs. But all that changes next week because the Bills do have a three-day mandatory minicamp. Why is it mandatory? Well, it's mandatory for players who now, up till now, have been voluntarily going to OTAs, although attendance has been great. But it's been voluntary through this whole time, through OTAs, through Phase 1, Phase 2, Phase 3, all the way back to the beginning of April when all this stuff started, maybe mid-April, I guess. But now it becomes mandatory for three days. Everybody has to be there. Shouldn't be a problem for the Bills because they've pretty much had, from my count and my kind of viewing of everything, Almost perfect attendance. I know John Brown wasn't there the other day, but who knows? He had been there in every other session that I had seen. So you never know what goes on with those kinds of things. They do have a lot of injuries. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, But next week, mandatory minicamp. It's also mandatory for me. I need to go cover it. So I will be there. I'll be on hand. I'll be giving you all the uh, info you need at WGR550.com on my Twitter feed at Sal Sports, of course. So make sure you're following along there. Yeah, the Bills have plenty of injuries uh, throughout these OTAs that they're dealing with. And what I mean by injuries throughout the OTAs is, you know, guys who are either banged up now through the OTA work, a little bit of soreness, maybe like in that Oliver's case, a shoulder or guys who are recovering from surgery in the off season. 
that really was the case with both wide receiver and uh, Cole Beasley and center Mitch Morse, who had core muscle surgery uh, due to some lingering things from last year for Cole Beasley, for sure. And I don't know if that was the case necessarily for Morse or if it was something more uh, recent that popped up. But I know with Beasley, what he said was it was from last year. And I'll let you listen to what he said about his timeline to return. It's, uh, it's good news on the front of him being almost ready, but not quite for minicamp. Now we're finally getting to where I can run some routes and start getting out there and running and moving. So uh, I feel like I've made it through the hard part, and now it's it's it's. I mean, I still have a lot of wor- a lot of work to do, but it's more downhill from here. I don't think mini camp. I'm pretty sure it's training camp still. Yeah, mini camp's a little early right now. Although I'm I'm feeling really good, and I I feel like I've made a lot of progress these last few weeks, and uh, I'm getting back to where actually better than where I was. Um, now it just comes down to conditioning and. Um, a little more mobility um, in that area and then just strengthening my legs. And you're not worried at all that you will be ready for training camp? No, no, I'll be ready. Yeah, I think I'll be ready by then. So Cole Beasley says he won't be ready for next week's mandatory minicamp, but he will be ready for training camp for sure and it's really more about conditioning. But even better news for Mitch Morris, the center said he should be ready to go for next week's mandatory minicamp. And in fact, he actually was out on the field for this week's OTA that the media was able to watch, but he was wearing a red non-contact jersey. It's kind of funny to say that because there is no contact anyway, but coaches just want people to be aware who's in a red jersey not to run into them and things like that, and they can't really take part in any of the offense versus defense, even though there's no actual contact. There are people bumping into each other, putting hands on each other and stuff like that, and he was one of those guys in a red non-contact jersey along with his, with his fellow center, uh, Russell Bodine, and offensive guard Quentin Spain, who had that thumb procedure a couple of weeks ago or last week. Uh, Ed Oliver, I told you, some shoulder soreness. Uh, Raphael Bush, the safety. Cornerback Taron Johnson, as he recovers from uh, offseason or last at the end of last season, uh, shoulder surgery that he had as well that landed him on IR. Who, the guys who didn't practice this week for the media portion of Tuesday when we were out there, and again, this could be different on Thursday or Friday, but Tuesday, offensive lineman Ty Secchi, defensive end Eli Harold, cornerback EJ Gaines, Beasley, wide receiver Zay Jones, tight end Jason Kruma to hamstring a couple weeks ago. Uh, and then tight end Tyler Croft, interesting that Sean McDermott said he's really still the only long-term type of injury that uh, the team needs to be concerned about at this point. Of course, he has the broken foot. That happened on pretty much, I think, the first day of OTAs. So they'll wrap it up this week. Then they'll have the mandatory mini camp. And again, we'll be all over it at WGR550.com on the radio and at South Sports on Twitter. The other big news this week was really off the field. And I went to the Jim Kelly uh, golf tournament on Monday, as I always do. Commissioner Goodell comes to town, as he often does for this tournament. And of course, you get an intimate private setting with Commissioner Goodell as far as the Buffalo media is concerned. When I say private, it's not me and him or just a few people and him. It's uh, really about a handful of Buffalo reporters who are in Batavia for this tournament. They get a chance to speak to him on a variety of topics, national, local, and of course, it always goes right to the stadium and people want to ask about it. He had some comments about the stadium and you know how important it is and building a new stadium, things like that. It, it, and then all of a sudden, other websites took this to who weren't there. And I know Pro Football Talk tweeted about something about the, the drum is getting louder, Bills. Build a stadium or else. Look, let me just kind of quell everybody's fears here. But at the same time, keep you aware of the reality of the situation. All right. To be honest, I didn't think he said anything on Monday that was any different than what we've heard for the last four or five years since the Pagulas took ownership and the new lease was signed and all that kind of stuff. And what that basic refrain is, hey, this is what the commissioner was saying in so many words. New era field is old. 
we got to build a new stadium here or do something else with this stadium, a major retrofit, maybe like Kansas City, Green Bay, Chicago, whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be done today, but we all have to start planning for it and be ready for it because it is going to have to happen. And that is the reality, by the way. That is reality. It's got to it's gotta happen at some point. But let me tell you, it doesn't need to happen today. It's not going to happen today. And I think he just kind of gave a little bit of a nudge on that. Maybe he was sending a message to politicians. Maybe he was sending a message to the Bagulas. Maybe he was sending a message to taxpayers. Maybe all of the above. Okay, that's fine. But let's stop with this, oh my God, this has to happen now. What do we want? Do we want a dome? Do we want grass? Do we want turf? We don't need to talk about any of that right now, all right? Because the Bagulas know that this is the reality of the situation. It's not like he dropped into Batavia from a helicopter on a Monday in June and said, hey, by the way, go build a stadium or we're moving the bills. Or, you know, we're not going to let you do something else. And he can't just move the bills. But you get the point. It's not what happened, all right? Let's go back to March. Owners meetings. Kim Pagula, Terry Pagula in Phoenix, Arizona. I was there as well. And Kim said, look, we're doing, and you, a lot of you remember this study, this uh, survey that came out that they had uh, been doing about the stadium and gauging fans and, you know, what they want, what they don't want, things like that. Well, CAA Icon is the company they're working with that they've commissioned to do a feasibility study. And Kim said at the time, look, this feasibility study is going to take a while. We're not going to have the results until the end of the summer. And then we're going to take it and look, they're going to see it. They're not going to give it to us and the public. And they're going to say, this is what the fans want. That is still has to be sorted out. A lot of that has to be sorted out. And she said at that time, literally everything is on the table. They are very aware of the situation. And no one is jumping right now to say, we have to get this done or else. No one, not the Bagulas, not even Roger Goodell, despite what it seemed like from some people that he said. On top of that, all right, let's remember, there is a lockout or strike looming after the 2020 season, the 2021 offseason, two years from right now. There is a lockout or a strike looming. That's because the CBA expires between the players and the owners. And there is no way any owner is going to ask for public money from their public for a new stadium right before that happens or while that is happening when they're also fighting with the players over getting more money. It just would not happen. This is an important timeline because between now and two years from now, no one's coming to you and saying, hey, we're going to build this stadium. We need uh, a bunch of money. That's not going to happen. A lot is going to change in the next CBA. Um, There's going to be a whole different kind of, I think, structure to contracts and different things they do with uh, finances between the owners, the players and all that, and including, by the way, and this is an important point, something called stadium credits. Right now, credits are a loan that is available to owners to tap into for any new stadium construction or renovation. And in this particular CBA that we have right now, owners can get up to $150 million in a loan based on how much private financing there is. All right, so how much they put up or they get donated to them or however they come up with it. It's not public money, not through tax dollars, but all the if you take all the money that you say we're going to put up for a stadium through this private financing, however that private financing is, there is an amount of money that you can tap into from the league up to 50% of that capped at $150 million. So let's just say the Bagulas come up with through their own money, through other money, privately, $300 million and say, we'll pay that for the stadium. As of right now, they could also tap into another $150 million through a loan with the league called Stadium Credits that is part of the CBA. And that can be paid over 15 years, and it's depending on how you're going to pay it back. PSLs, through certain licensing or suites and clubs and whatever. That's that's all for the league to work out how that wants to be repaid. Here's the bad news of all this, okay? 
The bad news is all that money's gone. That money was part of the last CBA that was taken as part of the player's share, 1.5% of their share, that now we've had all of these stadiums built within the past 10 years or so, and a lot of that money's been tapped into, and it's, it's exhausted. It's gone. But here's the good news. It doesn't matter because we have a new CBA in two years. There's no more stadiums being built between now and two years other than the ones currently under construction with this is already taken care of with this money. So no one's going to start another one within the next two years anywhere around the league. And we're going to have something else or new money or whatever that can be a part of this. Maybe it's more money even that they can tap into. We don't know the situation there. So we're talking at least two or three more years before there's any real clarity on how any of this is going to happen from the CBA to the stadium credits to all of the stuff that needs to go into the, the feasibility study, not only from the Pagulas and CAA icon, but also Erie County and New York state and all the different studies that they're going to do and say, and then they're all going to get together and go, well, our study says this. Well, our study says this. Well, you know, that's negotiation. And that's how you come to the table and say, how do we present this to the people of Western New York on what we want to do moving forward? And we are a long way from that. So my guess is we're going to keep hearing the same thing from Roger Goodell as we have so often already over the last several years. We're going to hear it next year. We're going to hear it the year after. We're going to hear it the year after. So Bills fans, just be prepared for this. It's going to keep coming up. Chill out. Wait and see for all these things to be resolved first because all these things have to be resolved first before any of this can happen. I was at New Era Field this week watching practices. Actually, was obviously inside or the, at their practice part of it, but it's right next door to New Era Field. I can tell you, I can report from firsthand, it's still standing. It looks fine, and they're still going to play a season there this year and next year, and then we'll see what happens with the lockout or strike and where we are then as far as any stadium talk is concerned. But don't concern yourself with it right now as far as any type of fear or anything like that. Just be aware that eventually something's got to get done. It does. There's no doubt about it. We're just a couple of years away from even really broaching what needs to be done right now. That's very, very exploratory on all parts. Okay, let's get to my uh, special guest this week. And um, you know what? I, I usually have people that you might recognize on this podcast and their names. Uh, did Micah Hyde uh, last year. It was awesome. Then I did his charity, his charity softball event, which was great uh, this past Sunday. And by the way, next year, go to this thing. It was awesome. It was a great time. I had a blast down on the field as the MC. but uh, like 40 Bills players were there. Home run derby uh, game. It was just, it was really cool. Anyway, uh, this this particular podcast, it's someone that you, you don't know much of on the Buffalo Bills. It's, his name is Mike Juan Dean. And Mike Juan Dean is a tight end that came from Western Kentucky, and the Bills just signed him a few weeks ago to their active roster. And this was really after uh, Tyler Croft had his injury and there was uh, Jason Kroom had an injury, but all that was going on with the tight end position, some movement. But anyway, Mike Juan Dean gets signed. And I learned about Mike Juan's story thanks to Bills PR director, Derek Boyko, who said, you know, this guy has a really interesting story. You might want to talk to him. So I did. I went up to him and I introduced myself. I started talking to him and through his story, I said, Mike Juan, I, I got I to gotta put this out in a podcast. So that's pretty much what happened is I stood with him in the Bills field house. I chatted with him for 10, 11 minutes, I think it is here. And I said, this is going to be my podcast if you're okay with this, because this is an incredible story. His father went to prison. His mother was basically stealing to provide for the family. She went to prison. The grandmother, his grandmother, was raising him and his brother's she gets killed in a car accident. His mom gets out of prison. I'll let you, I'll let you, you got to hear the story about him and his family. I just gave you a little tease of it. It's incredible. And to be where he is today, 
And oh, by the way, happy ending, things he's doing today to mentor younger people and youth and stuff like that. I really want you to listen to this interview with Mike Quan Dean. And thank you very much for joining me here on the Sal Sports and T- Stuff podcast this week as I talk to Bill's tight end, Mike Quan Dean. Just tell me a little bit about, you know, you, where you grew up, kind of what, what life was like for you. Mm. Okay, yeah, so I grew up um, North Tulsa, obviously Oklahoma. Um, and it's kind of where, you know, it's a high poverty rate. Um, and my family just happened to go through, you know, the stuff that kind of everyone goes through in that side of town. Uh, my father went to a prison for selling narcotics and stuff. Um, probably six months, eight months after that, after that my mother ended up going to prison um, for, uh, like, trying to get us clothes and stuff. Like, we would sell, like, malls and stuff like that. Um, and we would go in there with her and actually watch her, like, steal stuff like that. But it was kind of at the point, like, where she had no choice because, like, it would be, like, wintertime and... Um, We'll be still like wearing like sandals and stuff and like maybe shorts and stuff like that. So, you know, it was a hard time and it was just kind of crazy because like growing up, we was like, we're going to do whatever it takes to, you know, to make sure she doesn't get caught because we're like smarter than average kids. But I mean, yeah. you say kids who, who, who? <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So it's me and my two older brothers, Robert and Ron Trill. Okay. Um, my oldest brother, probably about four years older than me. And my uh, my middle brother Ron Trill is probably about two and a half, two years older than me. So it was all three. It was uh, it was us three and my mom. And you know, it was just kind of we were facing hard times. Um, and we knew like for sure that like she she had to because I mean it just came to a point where we'll be at school and our principal would come up to us and asking us, you know, it's like, hey, are you guys everything good at home? And you know, is there everything? It's like, yeah. And then they had to bring my mom out there just because she didn't have, she couldn't supply us with you know i mean certain clothing so like so, that. so how old were you when your dad went away i think i was like five do you remember that yeah i actually do tell um, me about it i think because just like for any kid growing up like anything that's tragic you know because that's why younger kids like are so smart and they can like remember a lot of things because they have so much memory they can be. but yeah yeah i remember um I remember this being tough you know my mom always you know crying and we used to go to church and she just cry i'm like why like I thought, because, you know, usually going to church, people is happy, you know what I mean, just praising God and stuff. So I was just kind of like, we was kind of confused on why she was crying. But, like, looking back on it, I was like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, it makes sense. So it was just. Did you have contact with your dad after he went away? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, currently right now, me and my mom and my dad are, like, I'm, like, real close to both of them. Uh, my dad's kind of working for a construction company in uh, Texas and my mom has her own salon uh, in Oklahoma so they're doing actually really well but when he was in prison did you have contact with him uh yeah yeah a little bit um we actually would go and see him um sometime before she actually before my mom actually went to prison so she we uh had contact with him and it got kind of it I, I I'm pretty sure I didn't really talk to him as much when I was in foster care and stuff like that so, I mean, at that time, it was just really my mom that we could conversate with. But my dad, we literally had almost, like, no contact. So, so your parents are gone. You go to foster care. Mm-hmm. All right. So, okay, okay. No, no. So, so my yep. parents leave. This is a crazy part, too. Okay, so, yeah. my parents leave. We move in with my father's, my, my grandma on my, on my dad's side. We stay with her for about <clears throat> 8 to 12 months. She drops us off at school one day. We get a call to the principal's office, like, there's no way, like, we're all good kids. Like, there's no way, like, we did anything wrong. So that tells us that our grandma got, um, she got, like, ran off the road by diesel, like, on the, on, like, on the bridge or highway. And, like, she, like, something crazy happened like, on the highway, and she ended up passing away. So we had to go back to her house, grab all our stuff, go back to foster care. 
and then we end up moving in with our with my mom's brother, my uncle, my uncle Russell. Um, probably about we we were in foster care for probably about three weeks. He came and picked us up. We stayed with him. He wasn't mentally in the right place. He was uh, he was gang affiliated. Um, and you could just tell, like we when we would stay there, you could just tell that he wasn't in the right place um, spiritually, like you know mentally. Um, but he you know he took us in, so we were always thankful. But he ended up probably about 12 months later, he ended up going to uh, prison for Grand Theft Auto. And one night, like, we were at his house, like, sleeping, and I guess he must have left. So we're all sleeping in our bunk bed and stuff, and we hear someone's knocking on the door. It's like, who is it? Like, obviously my uncle's going to get it. And it's like, keep getting loud and loud. Bust open the door. All I remember was the lights was off, and I see flashlights. I'm like, it's the cops? I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, this is crazy. So they end up grabbing us, and we went back to foster care, and then that's when we went to North Tulsa, which is like literally the worst. Like, like their crime rate is very high. And um, that's how old of, were you at this time? I was probably about seven. Jeez. Yeah, so seven, probably around seven-year-old seven. deal with all of this in their life. I mean, mm -hmm. that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So honestly, you know, my my two older brothers, you know, they're currently in prison, but they were really like my mom, my dad. Like they told me what not to do, but it would it just kind of sucked for them because at the time that they when we were when we were in North Tulsa, they got to experience that, and they became friends with you know guys that was on that was around there, but they had no idea that the stuff they were doing was bad. Hanging around the wrong guys, trying to see if you know people doors on like 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 it was just. And our like the lady that took us in, she didn't care about us at all. Like she let us stay out to about two in the morning. So how do you? What happens? How do? Who raised you through high school, and how did you? find your way out yeah. so to speak yeah so um after that my mom got out and uh, she got a good job and stuff and kind of fast forward uh probably about after my ninth grade year uh so my your mom, mom gets out she raises you she gets yeah. everything's back mm -hmm. kind of like she's doing her mm -hmm. thing trying to provide yeah, for yeah, you guys no, all three of you you're you're there so yeah so fast forward my brothers get into juvenile and they start going to prison in and out of prison um with me i was living with her we we uh her my stepdad um, we kind of moved into a one-bedroom apartment, and she was pregnant with my little brother. So I was like, "Wow!" Like, kind of feel like, like I'm sleeping on the couch. I'm like, "This is really like weird. Like, I don't like this." So I'm like, I used to have my friend, one of my best friend, Alex Stop, and I had like so many families that like literally helped me out. They'll probably be up here soon. But I, uh, they used to come and pick me up from school with a bridge that they came and got me with. They had to do construction on it. It took like two years to like, so. It took him like 20 extra minutes to get me and then go to school and we'd be like 10 minutes late for class. So I was like, it got to a point where like two weeks doing this, I'm like, hey, can I just stay at you guys' house? Like you guys, you know, feed me, you know, you guys, you know, um, help me with studies. Um, and, you know, there's a very, you know, smart family. You know, they, um, all the kids major in engineering, chemical engineering. My best friend Alec, he is at the University of Florida right now uh, doing engineering. So um, it was just, you know, I think God placed, you know, a lot of good people in my life, you know, and, my mom was just, me and my mom had a little bad, you know, sure. just because, you know, as a mother, you know, when like you a see. A lot some, of teenagers do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you see, you know, when you see your son, you know, with a white family, you know, with me being black, they were just, she thought that at the time that they were just wanting something from me. But in reality, they were my angels. So tell me about that family now and how close you are with them. Yeah, so honestly, there's probably three families. There's my friend Alex Vaughn and his family, my uh, friend Garrett Richardson. And then Alex Staub. Those are three families that, you know, financially that did anything. My friend uh, Alex Vaughn, his dad, and them pay for my phone bill. Um, 
and which is the white family you lived with? Is it Dodd? Huh? St- yeah, the Stobbs. Oh, yeah, yeah, Stobbs. Yeah, 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 the Stobbs. Uh, that's who I stay with. But I'm telling you, it's like so crazy. You probably get mixed up because like it's school year, I'm with the Stobbs, and in summer, I'm with the Richardsons. And anytime now, I'm like, I'm like usually everywhere. Like if I go home back to Tulsa, like people don't know where I'm at because I'm usually always going around seeing. And then was football an outlet for you? Yeah, um, well, it kind of got to a point where one game, you know, I rushed for about 430 yards, 450 yards. 429. Huh? 429. There you go. Assist from Derek Boyko, PR. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Derek. Uh, Yeah. But, uh, yes, I'm like, wow, I think I can actually, yeah, against Durant High School. So I'm like, I think I can actually be good at this. Um, And I think the biggest thing for me, I was was more spiritual and more, like, mentally um, tough than everyone else. So... I felt like that I could definitely do it, and that's how I got here, honestly. Was, and you had good grades to get recruited by big well, schools? Yeah, uh, no, well, I had okay grades. So, you know, my, so my freshman year, I went to a Christian Academy school, Metro Christian Academy, and I wasn't mentally in the right place. You know, it's a, it's a lot of excitement going on for, you know, a guy that's just been around, you know, a small group of people. So I got there and didn't do too well, and then I went to Tulsa Memorial, was playing catch-up my whole through my sophomore and senior year playing catch up and then I unfortunately had to go to junior college because I had a okay like I think I had like a 20 or 21 on my ACT but you know the GPA got at least so um so yeah I ended up going to junior college route three years and then went to Western Kentucky too and then mm-hmm. so tell me now about how you try to give back and you know help people in maybe rougher situations right so um usually back in my hometown um when i just got back i went to go talk to the guys at my uh school memorial high school and i talked to them a little bit and just kind of tell them how just i honestly just be you know very simple and very straight to the point because uh i don't want to sugarcoat anything from and make them believe that it's all glamorous but it's reality it's a lot of hard work that goes into it um, and then there's just like a lot of kids uh, I go go and see um, that I've known, like the older brother and stuff like that. And when I was at Western Kentucky for two years, I mentored uh, probably me and one of my best friends mentored probably about ten kids at a, a local elementary school. And uh, they're just you know, honestly with them too, I told them just straight out, you know, just this the truth, you know, because um, I feel like that's what they need. I feel like they kind of, our kids are you know our generation that's coming up, they're getting smarter, they're starting to. Um, they're starting to come, become aware to a lot of things. So with us being there, being football players and stuff like that, I was like, hey, if you want to go D1 like that, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to make good grades and you're going to have to keep your head, you know, keep, just keep your uh, mindset, you know, on what you want to do and you can't be messing around with everybody else and trying to. Would you like to do this as well if you don't like do whatever, PR and all that stuff? Would you like to work with youth or in yeah. some capacity? Yeah, yeah. Um, honestly, yeah, I want to do stuff uh, – if that's, you know, whenever I get a job or, you know, just doing mentor stuff like that. But, I mean, honestly, I think that was my – the whole purpose of me being here was so that I can get a platform and then so that I can, you know, end up talking to people. Like, when they had that flag football, I was talking to the whole family. Like, yeah. <laughs> I literally went down the side and talked to literally everyone. And there was a group of kids. I actually got some guys um, name and number. He's kind of got a, a boys group or something like that. And, uh, yeah, it was probably about 15 of them. So – uh, pretty here soon. I'm gonna be, you know, hanging out with them and, and you know, talking to them. So, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you're a great talker here. Uh, I appreciate you doing this with me. And Derek says maybe even in PR, maybe someday, huh? Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you know, Derek, you know, give me an internship or something like that. You know, I'm definitely there. 
Yeah, I'll just take it down. Nah, I'm good. But yeah. And real quick, how you think things are going out here for you? Uh, I think it's going all right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a couple slip ups, you know, kind of young, and we just got a young group, so I'm trying to learn from everybody else's mistakes and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's a blessing to be here. Thanks a lot to Mike Quan Dean, Buffalo Bills tight end. I'll be uh, following and tracking his story throughout uh, training camp, as I'm sure a lot of you will now after hearing that. He's got a, a tough road ahead of him to make the roster, but you never know what winds up happening. Until the next time, thanks for tuning into this Sal Sports and Stuff podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.